listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We really appreciate you hanging out with us. Uh, means a lot. Uh, we enjoy uh, doing what we're doing, and uh, we we hope it's important. We hope that people get something out of it. Out of it. Uh, yesterday was a big day for us. We had uh, several people out in the wild tell us that they listen to us and they enjoy our work and, and that it is uh, it has been helpful for them. So uh, that's why we do what we do. Um, we do have uh, 30 some odd people watching over 30, 35, 32, 36, 38, something like that. And only 26, uh, 26 people have liked the stream. So let's get that up if we could. Everybody listen, um, if you haven't liked the stream, then consider doing that. Uh, it really helps us out is what they tell us. Uh, somebody said in the chat, sounds like a country music song uh, while our... Uh, halftime interlude was playing and that is a recording of Florence Reese the author of which side are you on the person who the songwriter the person who wrote it uh, she was singing that at a UMWA convention and uh, and it was a cappella so uh, we asked Jules Taylor who is the producer of the working people podcast to uh, do us up some stuff with it and so all of our music that you hear all of our intros our outros our musical interludes all of that uh, we had uh, originally commissioned by Jules Taylor, so he put her he put her uh, uh, vocals on top of music that he made. So um, so very cool. Jules is obviously very talented. If you you know listen through that interlude and, and you you know heard oh, the yeah. song, very cool. Um, and it's also I think very cool to actually have the writer of which side are you on uh, as you know part of our show. Um, and it's cool to kind of have the the more modern you know. Like and and that's kind of like what we try to do with the show too. Like it's almost like symbolic of what we try to do with the show. We try to bring in the history and the traditions of the labor movement in like to a modern audience in kind of modern way. We still are on terrestrial radio. We think that it's important, but we also put it out online and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I really like the song. Very big fan of uh, Florence Reese and Jules Taylor, and really like uh, that collaboration there. So. Let's go ahead and, and uh, the first thing that I wanted to um, – oh, and we also have the phone lines open, 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857 if anybody wants to call in. But uh, it is going to be – it's probably going to be about 30 minutes before we can get to you because we're going to get to a se- oh, one segment and then we're going to talk to Chris Townsend about the UE Wabtec strike. Um, but this first segment I wanted to talk about uh, how the Republican Party uh, just really attacked teachers. Um, 
last week during their debate. And, you know, I know that that's an issue that's very, very close to Adam. He said that he did not watch the Republican presidential debate. And so um, I have a couple of clips about teachers uh, that I wanted to to play and and get Adam's reaction to. So let's uh, let's play this first one. The only way we change education in this nation is to break the backs of the teachers' unions. They are standing in the doorhouse of our kids, locking them into failing schools and locking them out of the greatest future they could have. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Kind of disturbing to see the use of civil rights imagery as like a way to propose busting labor and declaring war on the educators the you know the dedicated men and women in the classroom who are trying to help these young folks and to use civil rights imagery and language around that is it's just uh insulting i think to everyone involved really um yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, because he is likening the people who are trying to protect public education, who are opposed to public dollars being diverted from public schools and going into private schools and going into religious schools and going into these in some states, literally unaccountable institutions that don't have an obligation to teach everybody in their community, that don't have an obligation to educate and care for students with disabilities or students from poor backgrounds, right? Uh, Or students who have uh, parents who are not, you know, uh, who are not straight, uh, a straight couple, a straight married couple, you know, in the case of religious institutions, you can have children turned away because their parents are gay. Right. And so, you know, teachers unions, the only, they're not even saying the, 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 (laughs) their opposition is not even to private education, right? Nobody is going around None of the teachers unions across the country are going around and saying it ought to be illegal for Catholic churches to have schools. It ought to be illegal for Baptist churches to have schools. It ought to be illegal for the rich and wealthy to create their own, you know, private academy islands or whatever. Okay. Oh, and it is in some other countries, just just so we're clear. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I'm not saying that to say that maybe that... You know, <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying like no yeah no no teachers unions are advocating for that. Right. right? Even though that you know they're you know that maybe they're <laughs> we we could talk about the merits and demerits of that policy maybe if that ever gets on the table. Right now it is not. The only thing that teachers unions across the country are saying with respect to this issue is that taxpayer dollars ought not go to these private unaccountable institutions. And that is a very, very simple request. That is a very simple statement of values, right? That's something that, in fact, actually most people agree with. And so to, you know, to paint teachers, educators, 
as Bull Connor is is gross. I mean, really, really gross. Um, and Tim Scott is not the only person who is do who is doing this. Well, and on the t- basic. yeah, Tim Scott knows exactly what he's doing, and right. yeah, it, it is it is very uh, insulting to use the civil rights you know language and imagery to advance an agenda that is ultimately aligned with segregation. You know, mm-hmm. it's just messed up, messed up. Right. Don't appreciate you, Tim Scott. No, not at all. Uh, but he, like I said, he wasn't the only one on the debate stage attacking teachers. There was somebody else. Let's play this clip. Tim's right, by the way. And I started this in 2010 by going right after the teachers unions in New Jersey and drove them down to an all-time low popularity rating because they were putting themselves before our kids. That is the biggest threat to our country, not UFOs. Okay. Hmm. Teachers unions are the biggest threat to the country, you know, because they're advocating for decent salaries, decent working conditions, smaller Mm -hmm. class sizes, nurses in every building, counselors for every student. Right. Because they're advocating for the needs of the students and the educators that serve those students, they're a threat. Mm -hmm. That's how they want you to see them. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised to hear it from them, of course, but, um, you know, I almost appreciate the honesty, though. Yeah. Um, almost. I mean, I'm not going to give them any credit, but, um, you know, I do prefer that. I'd rather you just be upfront about mm-hmm. it. Um, we've obviously seen a lot of Democrats over the last, uh, you know, however many years who love to show up to the teachers union conventions who love to get their PAC contributions. Uh, Mm. but then we're happy to also help promote agendas of privatization and corporate education reform, you know, so at least, you know, yeah, at least they're explicit about it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, why is it that they're opposed to the teachers union? But they, you know, they're not going to be very honest about that, that it stands in the way of their agenda of profit. Right. They, they're not going to be honest about the fact that they want teachers to be paid less. They think teachers deserve less health care. They, des- they think that teachers deserve bigger class sizes. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, yeah, they're exactly. not going to admit that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I mean, the idea that, that teachers just have it too good and too easy is just such a kind of laughable thing. Uh, you know, uh, anyone who's worked in education knows, you know, or anybody who knows anybody who's worked in education. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not really interested in, you know, folks who, who traffic in those narratives, I think, know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so have we got Chris in the Zoom? Let's see. Let me double check here. I do believe so. I think we got Chris in the Zoom. Fantastic. All right. So uh, Chris Townsend is a longtime labor organizer. He was formerly, a, I think, the director of the organizing department for UE, United Electrical Workers Union. Uh, he's also been the director of organizing for the Amalgamated Transit Union. And uh, now he is a uh, prolific hawker of books. 
Uh, that <laughs> and, and just like all around a good dude. All around a good guy. Absolutely. Right. Just a really um, a good dude and really appreciate all he does for the movement. Um Absolutely. We Absolutely. are uh love love the books that we've gotten from Brother Chris and and the work that he's done to get books back in print uh has been very, very important and beneficial for working folks. So Absolutely. uh Chris Townsend, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh on on my bio, uh, I was the political director for the United Electric Workers and then the organizing director for uh, ATU. I refer to myself as the jack of all trades and at least the master of several. So there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, that, that's uh, I appreciate that uh, that clarification. So, Chris, uh, you know, having been involved with a UE for so long, uh, you know, you are and actually, you know, being kind of relatively close, at least closer than us, to the strike in Pennsylvania. Um, talk to us about what the uh, uh, the UE uh, Wabtec strike. What what's been going on there? Yeah, thank you, and uh, thanks for taking an interest in this. This is the largest uh, industrial strike underway currently. It's been underway since June twenty second. This is the uh, United Electrical Workers Union, uh, two locals, local 506 and local 618. That's the production and salary locals, both are on strike at a company named Wabtec. It's the old Westinghouse air brake technologies. They souped up the name to Wabtec. And for probably a hundred years, this was a general electric uh, company facility. And, uh, in 20, 19, anyone who follows the, the decline and fall of the General Electric Company, uh, the, the collapse of the company really due to corruption and wild speculation and 101 other outrageous uh, corporate behaviors, all of which went unvestigated and unprosecuted, uh, I might say. But in the company's stage of collapse in 2018 and 2019, they sold their railroad locomotive production facility, one in Erie. They had already established a second in the South in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, low wage, no benefits, you know, all the usual reasons why companies would do that. And they sold them to this company called Wabtec. And uh, UE was forced into a strike at its first uh, dealings with Wabtec in 2019. And now we, here we are at the end of that that was original or eventually settled. And now here we are at the end of the contract that was settled as a result of the first strike. Now here we are in the midst of a multi-month strike now by the 1400 workers who uh, assemble locomotives and do some other products uh, in that facility. So it's a tough strike. Um, the issues are what you might expect, uh, not in any particular order, wages, of course. Uh, when you go through that kind of a corporate uh, change out. You have to switch as a union from dealing with one conglomerate to another. Um, you know, you things lag and the wage situation. Of course, the, infl the inflation factor has kicked in since 2019. So wages are an issue. Uh, there's also an interesting, probably the unique thing about this strike uh, compared to others and why folks maybe would take a little interest in it is that uh, one of the demands of the union is to restore the right to strike over unresolved grievances, non-disciplinary grievances. 
And this existed under General Electric, and it was a large part of why the company pretty much minded its P's and Q's on a lot of things. Uh, GE was a, was a monster and an anti-union monster, but that right to strike and the occasional exercise of that right to strike mid-term, mid-contract, uh, legal right, you know, in, written into the contract to uh, resolve unresolved grievances, it kept the company honest, honest. And of course, that was lost in the changeover uh, and during that first strike. And of course, the record will now reflect that Wabtec just harasses people and harasses the union uh, into multiple arbitrations. It's a financial punishment of the local. And uh, it, so in any case, the, the labor relations of this corporation are, in fact, the, in some ways, even worse than General Electric, if you can believe that. And uh, workers took strike action on uh, June 22nd, like I said. And then the last thing I'll say, just to encapsulate it, to, to abbreviate it, the issue here, guys, really is the railroad locomotive industry, which we wouldn't expect very many folks to understand, but it's a trustified industry. Uh, there's really only two significant builders of locomotives, so Wabtec, the former GE, and Caterpillar now through one of its subsidiaries, which is the former General Motors piece. And these companies are both anti-union. Uh, they've been both trying to systematically de-unionize their U.S. operations. And one of the things that UE, I'm very proud of, uh, has gone after them that uh, when you get into the the details, you get into the weeds of why aren't more new locomotives being produced. It's because the companies, the rail companies and the remanufacturers work the remanufacturing angle. Because if you remanufacture an old use, even a jalopy locomotive, you're not subject to any of the current, what they call tier four emission standards. So what that means really is if you want to remanufacture an old polluting locomotive and then still have it out there running around polluting beyond what a new locomotive would uh, bring, there's no incentive or much less incentive to buy a new locomotive. So UE, to its credit, has raised this issue, uh, you know, as part of the climate change thing and that, you know, the federal government is complicit in this uh, and has been for multiple administrations going back decades. Uh, but the uh, the the federal government has the ability because of its tight regulation of the railroads, if it exercises that power to to move in this direction and force the railroads to do uh, what they should do uh, and could do, but won't do because they're not forced. So this is kind of a, a an interesting strike with uh, with that right to strike over unresolved grievances as a key issue. Of course, the wages, like I mentioned. And then this press on the company to actually more seriously expand the work that it does in Erie on, I guess you could call them green locomotives. We're really talking about less emissions, so a less polluting type type technology. But this is key. The, the pollution caused by these locomotives is significant. Anybody that's ever lived around a railroad yard or facility knows that. So. So in a nutshell, that's where we're at. We've been on strike since June 22nd. The members have held very, very tight, almost no scabs. Scabs have been brought in from outside. That's been a bit of a fiasco for the company and public relations, black eye. But um, And negotiations are ongoing to an extent. They, they start and stop 
but uh, this is not a case, a case where negotiations have broken down completely, at least yet. And how long has the strike uh, been going on for? Uh, since June 22nd, well, about two and a half months, I guess, or two months. Uh, yeah, almost three, going on three. If it's June, yeah, no, uh, June this, 22nd, no, yeah, no, it's more like two and a half months. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, and and why is the company saying that they won't, uh, you know, what is their rationale? Because theoretically, you know, if they have the right to strike over, you know, non-disciplinary issues, well, the way that you could avoid them striking over non-disciplinary just disciplinary issues is just follow the contract you agree to. Like, right. if you're willing That's to right. agree to a contract, why would you be so opposed to an enforcement mechanism? Sure. Well, I, I, I think it's it's apparent, that, and this is not unique to Wabtec. These companies are pathologically anti-union. I use the word pathologically carefully because this is almost a medical defect in their minds. They have no <laughs> respect for the workers. I mean, I, I mean that sincerely because no, this is an ideological yeah, you're right. understanding that they have, that, that their attorneys, their whole management, uh, negotiating team, it's inconceivable to them that you would allow a worker to strike ever anywhere. I mean, they, they view us as serfs and vassals, really, in every way. They're, they're rare to admit that, but that's kind of their notion. And then the notion that somehow the company would agree to a, a, a language in a collective bargaining agreement and under really certain very limited surgical situations that the workers would be able to resort to strike action. Well, that's just, that's for those fat cats, that's just unimaginable. And uh, I commend UE for taking this on because this this ability to strike mid-contract over unresolved grievances was formerly, if you go back, you would have to go back 30, 50 years ago and later, but this was quite, quite common in many industrial contracts and in many pattern agreements and whatnot. And it wasn't very frequently used. It didn't have to be because in those situations where the boss was aware that it could face this, well, let's follow the contract and not start a war and all this. But absent that pressure, and we see this all across the labor movement, I think half the shows that you guys do, you have employers that have a union, they sign a contract and they violate it, they undermine it, and um, with impunity many times. So it's hard for the management to even conceive that it, while the companies would prefer not to deal with any union at all, but if they're stuck dealing with them, they certainly don't want to agree to things like this. So this is a real battle royale. And, uh, you know, that's part of why I volunteered to lend a hand, you know, with the, the work. And the, the, the strike is not getting the degree of publicity that it should command. That's probably because um, it's only in one city in Erie. Erie's a little bit out of all the media markets. But it's also we've had, you know, in the last year, we've had the enormous railroad strikes, or, or strike breaking by Biden, which is, you know, 100,000 workers compared to 1,400 in Erie. We've had, what, the UPS. You don't get any bigger than that. So now the writers strike, the screen actors go. I think it's a bit overshadowed by all that other strike activity. But anybody that would want to examine what's going on in this strike, you just uh, go to UE Local 506, put that in your search, and you'll find the local website 
the National Union UE website, you'll find all the local reporting that's been going on and, and you can pick up with it. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think it's just really remarkable, uh, to, to fight on those issues, to have those issues as part of a contract fight, you know, because to have consequences for the employer mm-hmm. is something we talk about all the time. It's something we were talking about with Boss Watch this morning, yep. you know, just all the things that employers will do if they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, it's not something that even necessarily has to be used all the time, but if there's a credible threat of it, right. there's a credible threat of consequence. Uh, it can really help improve people's lives on the job. Uh, and, and you know, the climate piece of that, I think, is really huge, too. Uh, that's really mm-hmm. cool to know, and I, I think that is... Um, yeah, there, yet again, another area where the federal government could be doing more, should be right. doing more uh, in a way to help our environment and help workers at the same time. Yeah. Right? And well, you know, the, the thing about strong enforcement provisions is is that actually more often than not, they're not enforced because they don't have to be. If you yeah, actually yeah. have strong enforcement right. uh, uh, provisions, then what happens is is. People are more likely, companies are more likely to, to follow what they've agreed to, to follow the law. And, right. you know, we saw that with, with Joy Silk, actually. You know, we talked about the partial resurrection of the Joy Silk Doctrine at the NLRB. And, you know, a lot of people kind of in the labor media space were saying that, oh, Joy Silk will br- would bring about the institution of card check. And... Actually, that's not what we saw when Joy Silk was uh, was the standing doctrine at the NLRB. Right. We saw that uh, employers just didn't commit ULPs during elections, and and <laughs> workers were able to have actually something close to a free and fair election. You know, as much as you can have right. an, as a worker in a capitalist society where your boss, you know, signs your check and all of that kind of stuff, and you know, all those inherent issues. But uh, you know, they they didn't break the law as much. You didn't have joy silk in for uh, joy silk bargaining orders typically. You just had fair elections. Right. Yeah, yeah something I, I'll add uh, two things, I guess, um, to that point. You know, the political support that UE has received has been good uh, from certainly the bulk of the local politicians, not all, but some and uh, some of the state and national political leaders. But on the federal level, uh, Senator Fetterman came up and walked the picket line. Mm, and uh, Senator Casey hasn't been seen anywhere. Now, I bring mm. that up because Senator Casey's the senior senator from Pennsylvania, and I worked with him 15 years ago. And his preferred style of operation and anything to do with these companies is to issue, you know, kind of weak press releases, wring his hands and hide. And uh, while he would be listed as a friend and a supporter, what is he doing actively to pressure on pressure Wabtec? Uh, Senator Fetterman said it's a fine example. I met with him a number well, a month ago, I guess I met with him over here and he's ready. What do you need me to do? And what's perverse about this uh is that there's no industry more regulated than the railroad industry. Now, whether or not the government exercises that power that it has and influences these companies is another matter. And folks may realize that we've had an incredible development of near complete monopoly in the large railroads, what we call the class ones. They're the ones that primarily buy the new locomotives. Um, Not too many years ago, there were several hundred class one railroads. 
sit down and hear this. Today, there are four in the entire country. And this tremendous amount of monopoly power, of course, this would have explained in part what gave rise to the strike that Biden had to break in the rail industry. You have four companies that dominate the entire United States. It's absurd. It's dangerous. And those companies make decisions that suit them and their shareholders and their management. They don't make decisions based on what serves the shippers uh, of goods and materials on the rail. And they certainly don't think about the railroad locomotive industry. And I guess uh, something that should be injected into any discussion of this strike is that this should be and has been a export, you know, a technology-led export industry. And uh, while it still does provide some exports, the industry is being systematically destroyed, moved south, including to Mexico. Both of these corporations uh, that, that market new large volumes of locomotives, which would be Caterpillar and Wabtec, both source a growing amount of their material from Mexico. Uh, GE, as I had mentioned, I think had built the mill in uh, Fort Worth, non-union mill there. And it's all seeking the rock bottom wages, rock bottom regulation and uh, anything. And, and the industry has now been wrecked in many ways, very atomized and wrecked. And now we find ourselves in this position today with, you know, really worn out, polluting locomotives being rebuilt, put back, put back, put back again, put back again, rather than the, rather than any sensible national rail plan. Uh, and you might think that some of the political leadership would look today and say, well, maybe this is time for us to electrify some of the rail lines and really begin to expand our rail lines, reconsider this 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 bizarre attachment that we have to highway building and, uh, you know, unlimited, um, uh, you know, burning of fossil fuel. No, the, the railroads have been allowed uh, to just drift into the hands of what is now the four enormous monopolies, and they make the decisions that suit them. And the, the political leadership kind of just sits and wonders, well, you know, wow, that's too bad. We saw the uh, the catastrophe right. in Palestine, uh, Pennsylvania, which is part of them. You guys have covered some of this. So mm -hmm. so this question of who's building the locomotives is, uh, is part of that, and it has to mm -hmm. be addressed. But it has to be addressed uh, as part of a total review of what has happened or what has been allowed to happen in this very key industry that we have. Right. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with that. And I mean, I think it's, it's one of the most important industries in the entire country. Uh, and, and something else that came to mind as you were talking is I just saw a statement from uh, RWU talking about the Sierra Club. Mm. And, you know, opportunities for them to work together and a new report that Sierra Club put out uh, about the rails that did include quite a few of the labor issues that RWU has been agitating around. And so, you know, I think that's promising. Um, I think anytime there's more folks out here uh, talking about this, because, um, you know, to your point, it's it's like we're in the Gilded Age all over again in so many ways in this country. And, you know, from the inequality of wealth uh, to the inequality of class power. And the, yet again, we have a railroad monopoly, uh, which is so dominant in this country. And we have to fight back against it. And it's going to take a, you know, a massive mm -hmm. public movement uh, to demand better. So, uh, right. you know, and, and this strike is just kind of 
one piece of that puzzle and ties in, you know, to this broader struggle. Yeah, uh, one last comment, if I'm if I'm allowed. Yeah. Uh, the when I was the political director for UE and I worked on this issue in, for so many years, I can't count. And uh, uh, for year upon year upon year, United Electrical Workers, Local 506 and 618, we would go to the political leadership at all levels, from the White House on down, and we would bring ample evidence with us, documented evidence. We would say, if you don't act. If you don't do something swift, something significant, mm. this industry of railroad locomotive production will be destroyed and offshored. And nothing that we predicted has uh, not come true. Right. Mm. And it's only the inaction of too many of our lawmakers at federal, state, both, that has allowed these companies to run them up like this. And now here we are when I joined UE, that mill in Erie had 5,000 union members in it. Today, it has 1,400. I could go through chapter and verse. Everything that this union has predicted and shown to the political leadership has come true. So that's why I get a little annoyed because I said, well, then what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for somebody mm -hmm. to turn out the lights? Is that what we, we should we invite the senator to come and turn out the lights after everything we said uh, has come true? I think we have to act uh, dramatically before that happens. Yep. Absolutely. I think that's Absolutely. exactly right. Uh, Chris Townsend, uh, former political director for UE, former organizing director for the Amalgamated Transit Union, and uh, current all-around good guy supporting working <laughs> folks wherever he can. We really appreciate uh, your time this Thanks. morning. Absolutely. Appreciate all you, right. brother. Uh, so while, uh, you know, while they are fighting for the right to strike over enforcement of their contract. I mean, and that's really the, the you know, that, that is a such a cool issue, I, I think, mm -hmm. to be part of the fight um, and such an important one. And yeah, yeah. I so I also applaud mm -hmm. UE for, for taking this on. Um, and I love to see, you know, when our unions are really taking a comprehensive look at these struggles. Right. And not because it's easy to get like really laser focused on just one or two issues. Um, but they all connect mm -hmm. and you, you always got to be thinking about, you know, how are we, you know, addressing the balance of power in the workplace. And so, uh, you know, that was really fascinating to learn about. Absolutely. Yeah. Exciting, um, exciting to learn about and, and, and looking forward to, uh, yeah, to their victory. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that, um, you know, I want to find out more about in terms of, uh, you know, strike funds and, mm -hmm. and what they what they need, what we can do to support, to, you know, uh, I think it's great, you know, to have Chris on and talk about this and we'll get that clip out there. But, uh, yeah, absolutely want to want to send our solidarity and love to those brothers and sisters out there. That's an important fight uh, and one that does connect to so many others. Yeah. Uh, something else that, you know, people have been kind of scrutinizing lately is uh, retirement. And uh, the 401k system that has really, you know, kind of scammed a uh, generation and a half of yeah, you working know, people. I was talking about this with, uh, you know, my in-laws not too long ago. We, we mm -hmm. were just talking about pensions and, you mm -hmm. know, it was in the context of UAW, actually, yeah. UAW pensions. But, um, you know, we talked about how used to pensions were kind of a standard. Mm. Um, it was just something that. Not everybody could expect, but a lot of people right. could expect enough to where, you know, 
you you would expect it at many jobs across mm-hmm. many industries. And even non-union ones. Even non-union ones, right? right. And, and now largely that's because of the efforts of unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's part of the value of what unions bring to the table in, in you know, lifting up the standards right. for all working people. Um, you and, know, so, you know, the but we talked about that, you know, yeah. how it really has been a that is a decline in the standard of living for working class people to not have that guaranteed defined benefit pension plan. This that really allows you to retire with some dignity. And the and that and that's right, that that's, you know, pensions are so important to people's ability to retire with dignity and, you know, not have to toil for the last years of their life and to be able to have the freedom to spend your last days on this earth doing something that is fulfilling to you or to just be able to rest, you know, your weary soul after 30, 40, 50 years of grinding your body and your mind away to make profit for some capitalist. You know, it's not a crime, actually, in my book, to just want to rest once you turn 65. But most people don't want to do that. Or younger. Or younger. Or younger, right? I'm planning to retire younger. I'm planning to retire at 57. Um, So that's... uh, and, And fortunately... The federal the federal workforce, um, you know, we have a pension. We also have like a a four hundred one k, uh, you know, replica, uh, and then we we have like everybody social security, and those are things that you know the the pension and and then you know the pension being weakened by the four hundred one k is not great, but the pension was obviously fought for by my union, and so, uh, you know, Lord willing, if nothing happens, I I feel relatively confident that I'm going to be able to retire at fifty seven. And everybody should be able to retire at 57. And, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop doing anything. But that means that, like, Lord willing, at 57, I'm going to have the freedom to do, like, anything that I want, you know, within reason. <laughs> and and not have to do something just because I need to earn a living, you know. Um, because I will have spent 37 years, you know, serving the American people. Uh, in the federal government, <clears throat> and and I'll be rewarded for that by you know being able to spend, you know the last the last hopefully you know a couple of decades of my life kind of doing doing something that I want. But but you know the so many people don't have that anymore, and that's because of the scam that that you know we've uh, that has been foisted on American workers the four hundred one k, and um and so that has meant that people are having to work later people are having to put retirement off for longer and some people you know today don't even anticipate ever being able to retire but according to uh right-wing radio host glenn beck that might actually you know be a good thing in fact let's play this clip from his show Americans who devote decades of their lives to toil should be able to retire in dignity and safety period I mean, I hate to point this out, but in the Hebrew language, there is no word for retire. Now, <laughs> pause, pause that for a second. I believe that, you know, I don't okay, know if I'm on. ever going to retire. But- 
<laughs> oh well, if there's no word in Hebrew for retire, well, well, shit, Glenn. I guess I should I should have to work till I'm 95. Check you got me. me. Check me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I literally, you know, there's nothing else to say. There's no word in Hebrew for retire. Well, that means we can't ever retire, right? And so what he was resp- what he's responding to here is tyranny. Inc. That is a new book put out by Sorab Amari that we may actually, I may actually reach out to this fella and talk to him on the show. He was on Left Reckoning. He is a conservative. He considers himself a conservative. He's kind of socially conservative. Um, maybe more socially libertarian, but, but you know, he is personally opposed to kind of social liberal values, but he's economically you know, he's more kind of on the left is what he says. And and in this book, he basically kind of lays out, you know, that, you know, conservatives should empower labor, actually, and be in favor of unions. And, um, you know, because that's actually it's actually good for the family. <laughs> if you're, you know, if, if the if the father or the mother or both of them have good wages and good health care and then retirement, you know, it's good for the family, it's good for the community, good for the church, you know, if people are comfortable. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, um, and something something Alex said in the chat that really I, I think resonates is you know, they said we would be an entirely different country if more of us had pensions. Financial stress just makes divisive rhetoric more effective on both sides. Stressing yeah. folks about their final days is even better. And I think that is uh, that's huge. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the prevailing wage that we were talking about this morning with the building trades or, you know, a retirement pension, um, you know, the, when we're helping working people live a more dignified life, they're going to be less stressed. Right. Those yeah. are better neighbors. Mm. Uh, mm. That's that's a better community. Uh, those are healthier people with, like you said, more time for family, more ability to take care of their family. Um, you know, and last I checked, uh, a lot of folks really like family values. Mm. I hear about those a lot in Alabama. Yeah. You know, good old fashioned family values, and so right. Um, yeah, you know, so I you think, know, I think having time to spend with your family, I think mm-hmm. being able to know that you can keep the lights on and feed your family, um, yeah, it's good for the family. Being able to go to the doctor when you need to, mm-hmm. being able to take right. your kids to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor, you know, that's good for the family. Yeah, shocker. Uh, so you know that's kind of Sorab Amari's case, and uh, I would recommend you know listening to his interview with with uh, uh, David Griscom on Left Reckoning. It's kind of in, an interesting dialogue. Have you know a socialist and a conservative talking about um, labor power? You know, it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting. I would recommend checking it out. But uh, so so Glenn is here, you know, responding to this and saying, you know, uh, it's actually not conservative to uh, think that a family should be supported. So let's let's play that back and, and let's l- let him finish his thought there uh, after he told us, you know, really put the truth bomb on us about the Hebrew language. Americans and, you know, who devote decades of their lives to toil should be able to retire in dignity and safety, period. I mean, I hate to point this out, but in the Hebrew language, there is no word for retire. Now. I believe that, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to retire, but even if I did retire, it would just be to do something else. You know, there's. Yeah, that's often what regular (laughs) people do, too. Uh, 
but he he did hate to point it out though. Yeah. You're you're never stopping working and that doesn't mean that you have to toil in the same right, right. job that you've been in. However, mm-hmm. what he says, a stronger labor movement with government backing could demand that large firms restore the older model of retirement based on defined benefits. Wait, the older model? You mean the one before the government took over Social Security? You mean one where you did The government took over Social Security. It was previously, apparently, private. Yeah, no. (laughs) Social Security is not the same as defined benefit pensions. It's uh, it's actually two different things you're talking about, bud. Mm. Did get a golden watch? You you did work at a company. Not all companies did it, but you could pay in some of your salary and you could retire and the company would help you with the retirement. That model was destroyed by the federal government, creating yet another agency. And what did they do with our money? They don't have our money. Every dollar that I have paid in to Social Security my whole life, I'm not going to see. I'm not going to see it. They don't have it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, some of this goes to the idea that like the the concept of a person going through their life, working really hard at a job that is trying to produce for their family, and at the end of that life, they're able to, let's call it retirement for the sake of this, but like, what is retirement? I mean, as you point out, retirement might be working at your church. It might be, yeah. it, it doesn't mean you just sit around at a golf no, course necessarily, right? Like, it's something that you want to do, finding that thing that you want to do. And that is something that I think we all aspire to. We do. When I look at the economy, I think to myself... Man, if I could just have the money that the government has taken from me Correct. over these years, I could do that on my own. I wouldn't mm-hmm. need government programs. But mm. instead, they take them from me. They give me a promise of a future IOU with money that I know they don't have. How stupid. What the fuck is he talking about? I mean, uh, like actual insane stuff. So there was a couple of arguments there. One of them is that Social Security destroyed the pension system. Okay, so um, and, you know, presumably, presumably saying Social Security was was taken over by the government. That was kind of like a he misspoke, presumably, presumably Glenn Beck does not actually believe that before the government took over Social Security, that there was a Social Security before the government that the government then took over and nationalized. Presumably, he doesn't take that. Presumably, he means the government taking over retirement in the form of Social Security. And he says that that basically his argument is that that destroyed the pension system. And that's just factually not true. Okay. And how do I know this? Well, we can look and see. Uh, let's Google really quick. Uh, when was Social Security uh, started? <laughs> okay. Here we go. Uh, 1935. <laughs> okay. So is his argument that actually uh, in 1934, Everyone had a pension, and then the government comes along and just destroys it. That's what you would have to believe for this argument to be correct, is that before 1935, everybody just had a pension. And then the government comes along, FDR passes Social Security, and uh, and now everybody's fucked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, I, he hates to point it out. Hates to point it out, uh, but, you know, we do like the truth on this program. Here's another... Here's another truth. Um, The number of employers offering traditional pension plans 
according to this, and now this may not be totally exactly right, but I, I think it's it's going to be kind of, kind of close, got up to almost 50% between 1970 and 1990. The Workforce.com says that 45% of all private sector employees had a pension by 1970. Uh, Inquiron.com says that in 1998, 50% of employers were offering traditional pension plans to new hires. Okay, so, you know, I think that we can conservatively estimate that sometime between 1970 and 1990, we actually hit the peak of retirement, uh, which is 1970, 1990, uh, the middle of that is 1980. And then, you know, from that time period, we started seeing the decline of pensions. Leave it to the listener to figure out what the hell happened in 1980. We'll just, that's, you know, there's uh, some homework for you. But uh, if the peak was in 1980 and Social Security started in 1935, that's actually um, almost 50 years after the implementation of Social Security is when pensions started declining. I mean, what just foolishness. Insane stuff. I mean, just totally incorrect. Totally devoid of anything, uh, you know, anything that is related to what workers experience here in the yeah, real world. Uh, I mean, it's wild. Yeah, we just got a comment um, from Jimmy Fedora. Who said, oh uh, in ancient Hebrew, there's no word for deceptive, misinformed talk show host, so Beck shouldn't have his job. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. That, yeah. That's, I, I, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, and then someone verbalized it for right. me. So Strom, Strom McCallum with a $2 super chat said, appreciate there's no that. word for railroad in Aramaic either. <laughs> so, you know. Whoops. I mean, I guess railroads are imaginary. They don't exist. <laughs> yeah, it's. What a trip. Uh, what a trip. Yeah. And, you know, think about the fact that millions of dollars have been has has been pumped into this guy and like promoting this guy, getting yeah. his foolishness mm-hmm. into people's brains. Yeah, I mean pumping it's yeah. Pollution. It is like intellectual <laughs> like pollution. Being... <laughs> They're yeah. polluting the airwaves with this garbage. Like he ought to be fined for this. Like mm. the EPA ought to <laughs> give him a citation. Yeah. But you know, so like, lest you think though that this is something that is relegated to the fringes of the online right. Uh, I have another clip for for for, for you from the Republican presidential debate stage. Let's play that clip. What we also did was cut pension payments to public employees to make sure that taxpayers were not being soaked by a public employee union system that was killing the taxpayer. Thank you, Governor. Wow. So there you go. If you serve the public, if you are a public servant, and nowhere are you getting rich off of being a public servant, right? That just doesn't really happen. If you're just a rank-and-file worker working for the government, you're not right. getting rich. You know, ex- with the exceptions of, like, you know, the university football coach, or, mm. of course, you're going to find, you know, those kind of Heads things. of agencies. But if you're a rank-and-file worker, you're not really going to get rich. So if you serve the public, 
you know, you administer Social Security or you, you know, uh, run the town office. Uh, Chris Christie, presidential candidate for the Republicans, thinks that you do not deserve to be able to retire with dignity. And nobody else on that debate stage challenged him on that. Okay, so we can just assume that this is a at least an accepted position in the Republican Party is that people who work for the public do not deserve to retire. Literally take money out of your pocket mm. and out of the community's pocket. And that was something, yeah. you know, I remember when we were fighting to defend the retirement system of Alabama against some of these same threats. Uh, from some of these same kind of forces, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, because it was, you know, the billionaire John Arnold uh, was behind some of these threats in Alabama to try to privatize the state pension system. And it was some of the same rhetoric about, you know, overpaid public employees and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one of the one of the issues we talked about was. Do you not recognize the economic impact that for every one dollar that is going to that retiree, the number right. of dollars that is circulating in our community? Seven times is what Brother uh, brother Kimball said. In terms of his local worker. hire. Yeah. In, yeah. In terms of that local hire. Right. And and so it's going to be a similar type of multiplier for, you know, a state pension, uh, any kind of public pension. And so, you know, to, hmm. to, to brag yeah. about trying to take money out of the pockets of elderly folks who have been working their whole lives. It is, um, you know, yeah. It's, it is it is a moment of class warfare. I remember you had Jim Cramer on here a couple of weeks ago. Uh -huh. He was really pissed that Sean Fain was apparently preaching class warfare. But mm. I mean, is this not class warfare right. <laughs> to to brag about taking money out of right. the pensions of retired state workers? Come on now. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, 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 and Alex, you mentioned this in the chat and I appreciate that because I wanted to mention this. Something tells me that, uh, Glenn Beck is likely already seeing it. That being his social security. Remember in that clip, he said, I'm never going to see social security. I'm never going to see it, uh, every month around the first or will very soon be at the minimum. And you're right. This guy is 59 years old. Okay. So when he Social says Security's there for him. When he says I'm never going to see Social Security, he is actually lying to you. Maybe he believes this about Social Security destroying the pension systems because he just doesn't read anything ever and has no idea about how the world works. I will give him that benefit of the doubt. Let's say that. Let's just say that he is so misinformed and stupid that he believes that Social Security destroyed the pension system in 1935. Okay? <laughs> Let's just pretend that we believe that. At 59 years old, having been in politics his entire life, when he says, I'm never going to see Social Security, he is lying. He thinks that it won't be there, and he will literally be eligible in, what, three years if he wants to take at least some of it out? Yeah. No, he does. There's no way that he actually believes. Come on now. There's no way he believes what he just said. It's all going to disappear within the yeah. next three to five to seven years. What a lie. A ghoul. A lying ghoul. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. I spent longer on that than I wanted to, but it's just so infuriating. But anyway, we have in the, in the Zoom uh, Cedric, right? Let me double check. Let's see. Uh, yes, we do. Okay. 
Awesome. Yeah, so Cedric Wilson is president of BCTGM Local 390G. BCTGM stands for the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union. They have been on strike now for months at IFF in Memphis. Uh, Cedric, brother, I appreciate your time this morning, and I appreciate your patience as we uh, ran over on that last Yeah, segment. Jacob got on a roll. Sorry about that. Get it, I'll get <laughs> yeah. So, um, start off. Can you can you tell us what your uh, what your members what you and your members do over at IFF in Memphis? Uh, yeah. So basically, uh, what we do is uh, we extract soy protein isolate, and um, it's uh, used in various products such as uh, Infamil. That's the big one. Uh, Insure. Uh, a lot of dog food. Purina. Royal Canine. Cliff bars, kind bars, Herbalife, protein powder. Uh, yeah, we extract the uh, protein out of soy, out of the soybean, and we sell that as an ingredient. Okay, and and so and and, and so, are y'all like kind of in a traditional like factory setting? Like, are y'all on an assembly line? No, no, it's a manufacturer. Uh, it's a um, production based. Okay, I see, I see. And so, uh, when did y'all go on strike? Um, it'll be three months next week. Three months next week. And what is the, what are the issues? Where are, uh, uh, you know, where are y'all apart? So really we haven't even gotten to the, some of the things that we're asking for. Um, most of the time, most of it is about things that they're just trying to take away without even getting anything back. Like, uh, you know, I saw you on your clip talk about the overtime after eight, um, you know, they're just trying to take it away without even offering anything in return. Um, one of the things that they want to do is give us a 30 day notice on all of our health benefits. You know, um, they want to be able to add or take away at any point in time, as long as they give us 30 day notice. Um, they want to take away paid breaks. So it's, mm. those three things are like the main things. It's just really just stop stopping them from taking things away from us. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that is just and, and, so insulting to, to offer those kind of concessions in this economy when, you know, it, it's hard and, to recruit. And also, they, they've only um, they've only offered 4% for the first year, mm. <laughs> you know, at the end of the negotiations. So, well, did they... Nothing bad. Yeah, so I, I just want to make sure that I'm being fair to the company here. Did they offer you yeah. 4% in the first year because they gave you... A uh, d because they gave you raises to match inflation for every year before this. No, we got. That, as a matter of fact, I take it a step further. During the entire pandemic, of course, we were essential workers. Uh, we got five hundred bucks in the cup. Wow. So no, no wages. Wow. And and we've actually we've actually been under negotiations for over a year now. Uh, we just chose. We finally chose to just not extend the contract. Mm -hmm. And like decide to go on strike so but hey we're gonna go on strike if you guys don't negotiate fairly right and and so i mean that is really really wild stuff to have gone through the pandemic without raises i mean you know at one point inflation was up to 10 percent uh and it's been you know between kind of five and ten percent almost the whole time so i mean you're talking three years ago 
uh, a fifteen percent pay cut at least, and they're only offering you a four percent raise in the first year, and then presumably lower raises in the in the next two years. Is it a three year contract that y'all are negotiating? Um, well, that's open. Um, that's open to whatever we've we've made one year offers, we've made three year offers, we've even had five year offers. It, it just all depends on what those what those wages would be, you know. Right, right. You know, and right so, now, I think one one of the main things right now is that we we we've had a decrease in orders, so they're trying to use that as leverage mm-hmm. to lowball us, mm-hmm. but they're expecting things to get better in the third and fourth quarter. So, right. Yeah, of course. And so, so is that the the primary reason uh, that that they are uh, that they're saying you know no we can't do this is just because like right now in this one quarter I mean presumably they they you know they did well over the pandemic right. Oh, the pandemic is some of the best years we've ever had. Um, actually, no, they haven't said that at all, you know, because they don't want us to see the books. You know, if you're in a negotiation. They say, hey, we can't afford this. They got to prove it. Right. Mm. Uh, we, we are actually still making a lot of profit. You know, it's just that they're, we're arguing about the fact that profits go went down just a little bit. You know, they're, they're still profiting 11 billion dollars as a uh, company. Still, are they a publicly a traded company? company? Yes. Okay, so they made eleven billion in profits last year. Yes. Wow. Now that, I think that's uh that's in sales, not profit. Yeah. Okay. Let me gotcha. I mean, oh, that's a lot. Yeah, this is obviously a very very big company in in terms of its sales. I mean, to be able to put out those kind of numbers and and yep. I'm curious uh, what's going on in terms of why they don't want to negotiate in good faith and just try to to work out a, a, you know a fair contract i mean y'all been working at this for a year now i mean is there any explanation beyond them just being you know stubborn i guess i, I got a few theories of my own um i think one of the things though is uh this is the first time we strike in 50 years mm. and they didn't believe that we would do it Right. Mm, wow. So, you okay. know, I, I, I would say personally, five years ago, we wouldn't have been able to do this. So we've had a lot of turnover over the years, especially right. during the pandemic. So we got a lot of younger and more more um, progressive employees that kind of see the bigger picture. Mm. So and that's not to knock some of the older employees we have. They We got a lot of those guys out here, too. We, right. we have about right. 200 employees in all, uh, about 20 of them quit during all this and 140 of us on strike. So. Right. Okay. I mean, that's really, you know, I think that's impressive. And that's a testimony to the solidarity that y'all have built, you know, inside the local to to be able to look out for one another. You know, I guess first it'd be willing to take on this fight and and be willing to walk out um, mm-hmm. and then to, you know, stick together like that, I, I think is really impressive and uh, really admire what yeah. y'all are doing. And, you know, I'm also curious, you know, kind of what... Um, what folks can do to support y'all from afar. Um, I'm sure if, you know, you're local in the Memphis area, you know, there's probably more you can do, but, you know, whether it's local or, or people outside the area, what, what can we do to kind of support y'all and lift up this struggle? Well, I, I do have a, a GoFundMe account. Uh, and I can send out, I can send that information to you. Um, yeah. But locally, uh, you know, just bodies on the line, man. You know, we, we out here. It's it's hot. It's 108 degrees out here right now. Right. You know, so it's pretty hot. You know, it's it's more of a, a presence type of thing. You know, and yeah. we haven't really been getting the media, and that's kind of why I reached out to you. You know, when I saw your video, 
you know, we haven't really been getting the coverage that we think I think we need because we don't really have a a, a name mm. per se to stick to it. You know, nobody knows IFF. You know, right. they recently bought us from DuPont, so DuPont's not really a part of us anymore. Uh, right. Yeah, we don't have that popular GM or mm. UAW or things like mm-hmm. that. You know, you don't think about soy protein isolate when you think about some of these products, right? <laughs> right, so, but it's yeah, it's an important. It's like it's so important and in so many, you know, products that we buy, I mean, and it mm-hmm. wouldn't happen without y'all, without right. your work yeah. that y'all do uh, every day. And so, I mean, to come to y'all asking for concessions in 2023 mm-hmm. with inflation, with the difficulty in recruiting and retaining workers, I mean, that is just uh, it's it's very insulting. And I think it's a shame uh that that's even the position y'all are in and you know definitely sending all mm. my love and solidarity to y'all yeah and do and, and uh do send us that link and but in the meantime for folks uh listening if you google bctgm iff gofundme strike it's the first thing that pops up support iff memphis formerly dupont uh worker strike and uh and and it lo- they could use a, a lot of help they've only been able to raise right now Almost nine hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, we can and, get that. Well, well we we've got more. Up. We we had to we had to redo it. So we we've actually gotten a lot more support locally. But okay, okay, that's good. awesome. That's good to hear. Give you that impression, but yeah, right, I, I right. just had to create a new account. So yeah, gotcha. understood, okay. understood, and that's great to hear. And yeah, I mean, that's anything that uh, folks can do. Uh, I think supporting you know strike funds is one of the you know the mm-hmm. most important things that we can all do as members of this labor movement even if it's just a couple bucks here and there whatever you got uh and i think it it also just sends a message of solidarity because you know the issues these workers are fighting for is relevant to all of us none of us want to deal with concessions right now in this economy none of us want to lose paid breaks in this economy mm-hmm. i mean that's just ridiculous so uh really appreciate y'all's yeah. fight and and you know Cedric, you uh, I asked if, if there were any stories kind of like you know we we've been talking about the the UAW stuff and and we've seen their executives just really kind of I mean being like belligerent in the press you know uh, wearing gaudy outfits thirty thousand dollar watches and and really being kind of out of touch. Uh, have you seen any behavior kind of in that vein, like being out of yeah, touch I, from I, the executives of IFF? I, I can actually tell you a, a really good one that happened while we were out here. Um, so we had a lady uh, who works in our lab. Her husband recently died. Mm. And she actually called the HR, uh, our HR manager, to ask about her life insurance policy, which she's still entitled to, right? And she told her, well, if you didn't strike, you you wouldn't have had this problem. Wow. You know, just cold. You know, mm. and, and the thing is, you, you would think that, you know, you, you want people to cross over. Right. So you treat them nicely to see if they'll cross over. But she's right. just completely cold to it. Wow. You know? and we is... actually have board charges on that right now because, you know, sounds like threat of reprisal to me. Right. Right. That is just so disturbing. I mean, to. Yeah. To even take it to that level. Wow. Their husband died. Yeah. And there. Wow. Died while we were on strike. And, my know, goodness, it's, it's, it's one. Of, it's sad, you know. And she's she's been one of our strongest people, you know. I, I, yeah. I give my heart to her, and I hope y'all keep her in the prayers, you know. So absolutely, absolutely. And ha- has she been able to get access to that life insurance account yet? Yes, yes, she okay. Is. And, and that's the thing; she was wrong, you know. So, right. 
Yeah, right. you, you were cold to her and you were wrong about it. So, mm, right. like, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that that is a real shame and, and definitely, uh, you know, I think indicative of sort of the way they've approached you all in terms mm-hmm. of not being willing to even sit down in good faith and then to treat employees that way. It's a real shame. And so I really I hope to see your struggle get more attention and I hope to see, you know, more more support and, and hopefully, yeah, particularly folks in the Memphis area, you all show up for these folks, these brothers and sisters out here fighting, you know, just for a better lives for themselves and their family. Yep. Uh, and uh, well, uh, Cedric Wilson, president of BCTGM Local 390, is there anything else that uh, that, you know, you, you'd like to share with with our audience before we let you go? Yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I watch I keep, I keep up with a lot of the uh, things that's going on around the country, too. You know, I just kind of want to get out there. You know, it, it's not a coincidence that all of these people, people, all these places are going on strike at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these companies are working together. You know, I, I, I me personally, you know, and it's just my personal opinion, you know, I think what what's happening here is that these guys are really trying to just set the market because when you're in negotiations, that's what you hear all the time: market value, market value, market value. But you know, it shouldn't it shouldn't matter. You know, it shouldn't matter about the market value or something. You know, if you made a lot of money, you should take care of your workers. Mm. It's it's really that simple. You know, and we're not asking for much. You know, we we're not breaking the bank. You know, you know, we we actually uh where we where we're ending right now, we're we're still open to move down from it. It's just that we haven't gotten any moving from their side. So. Mm. Right. You know, at this yeah. point, you know, they're just trying to make us negotiate our time and our lives, you know, so it's like, I'm not doing it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, y'all... I, I mean, you're you're exactly I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, there's I mean, there's a class war. The you know, the, yeah. the people that own these companies are are, you know, I mean, I think I think literally in, in, in a sense, waging war on the people that actually create value in this society. Um, yeah. And, and trying to chip away at all different angles, whether it's at our pay or whether it's in our time, you know, in our yeah. health, health care benefits or retirement benefits or, you know, wherever the struggle is taking place. It's, uh, you know, the, and I think the solidarity is is so important in that sense being able to stick stick up for each other uh, and to organize and, and fight together to withhold, you know, to, to stand strong against these kind of attacks. So, uh, yeah, definitely just lifting up the struggle for sure and, and wishing you all all the best. And uh, definitely I'm, I'm curious about this company, IFF, and I, I'm going to be looking into them a little bit more. And, you know, Jacob, maybe we can come up with some, some stuff to talk about with IFF. It mm. sounds like they're... Uh, they're an interesting company. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, well, I can tell you, you know, I, I think we are having an effect, you know, because their stocks are dropping pretty bad. You know, you know, I, I kind of been looking at what's going on with them. And, and, you know, they bought us out a couple of years ago from mm-hmm. DuPont. And I think they were already kind of on the way down when they bought us. Mm. And I thought I think we were supposed to be the same. Mm. You know, and that's, right. that's what I personally think about that, because, you, you know, you look at all the articles online about why their stocks are falling. It's because of product availability and, hmm. you know, I, I think the word they use was management credibility. Wow. You know, things yeah. like that. So, yeah. you know, I think we're having an effect, you know. Whether we yeah, believe absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your time, brother. Thank you. I appreciate your help. Yes, All sir. Right. Yeah, best of luck in your struggle. And, and definitely want, want to lift that up because... You know, and I think he's right. You know, there is true that these fights are just happening all over the country. And, um, you know, it's important that working people stand together 
And all these fights are connected in their own different ways. Uh, you know, this is something that's going to affect the entire Memphis community. I mean, well over 100 jobs, right? I mean, to think that well over 100 people could lose a paid break, that's ridiculous. You know, yeah. paid breaks are, are important victory that they won and they fought for and they organized for. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, you know, they had been on strike in over 50 years. And so it finally got to that point. Um, and, you know, this is another area where we've seen companies in, in a way that seems much worse than it used to be. I don't know if, you know, if I don't have the data to quantify it, but it seems like companies are more likely to just bargain in bad faith now and to just intentionally not negotiate, uh, whether it's a first contract, like in the Starbucks situation, or, you know, think about Warrior Met uh, and the, their approach, uh, you know, our IFF here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I am, there's somebody in the chat that is uh, really... Trolling. Really trolling, and oh, well, I never, yeah, I never uh, delete any comments or anything like that. But I kick this person off the stream. So. Oh, okay, well, uh, so yeah. Anyway, so um, you know, and so this is what unions are fighting for across the country. You know, they're fighting for for things like being able to retire with dignity. They're fighting to, um, you know, be able to. Uh, have dignity at work and have good pay and stuff like this. And that is threatening to the companies and the politicians that they buy. And so they don't like it. They don't like workers having some sort of autonomy or some sort of power. And this wasn't at the Republican presidential debate, but it did come out at a forum that Nikki Haley was at last week. And it was regarding economic development in North Carolina. And so listen to what she said about her approach to economic development. But, you know, the other thing that we did that was really important was I didn't want any company to come to South Carolina if they were unionized. Mm. I would not. We never wanted a unionized company. I didn't want them to taint our water at all. Wow. Mm. <laughs> we didn't want anyone in South Carolina to get the wrong idea that they might could join together and actually have better wages and benefits. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty absurd. Uh, not often that they're that explicit with it, right. uh, but it is certainly the approach. And, you know, that's kind of been a theme of the show today, talking about economic development and how you know, the bosses and politicians here in the South in particular, that's mm -hmm. what they're selling, right, is a hostility to unions, low wages, lesser educated workforce that has less options with lower expectations. Right. Regulations that are lax or absent, regulators that are non-existent or bought and paid for. Yeah. You know, that's that's what they're promoting as a quote-unquote business-friendly climate, right, that they need uh, for economic development, so to speak. When it's, it's a shame because there's so many ways to have economic development that actually comes from the side of labor and supporting the people, right? Because 
what they promote is this economic development from the side of capital. But when we have economic development from the side of labor, we are supporting mm -hmm. the people. We the people, the majority, the vast majority that are working class, you know, the most diverse class of people. And, um, you know, there's just so many ways, whether it's prevailing wage, project labor agreements, and, and those kind of issues we talked about earlier with the building trades, or whether it's retirement pensions, you know, this paid leave, all these different ways in which we can do economic development that actually supports people and improves their lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, yep. it's a disgrace. It's really a disgrace. Absolutely a disgrace. She said this at The Gathering, which was a conference co-hosted by syndicated conservative talk radio host Eric Erickson and hardworking Americans. N not actual hardworking Americans, but the, that is the name of a political action committee founded wow. by non-union construction boss Brian Kemp. Every serious Republican presidential contender not named Donald Trump is scheduled to speak at the event in Atlanta. And uh, so this is from the Atlanta uh, Journal-Constitution. And so, uh, yeah, really. And, and so, you know, that's the audience that she was speaking to. Um, and it's just so, uh, I mean, really, really. I mean, it's amazing how they're, you know, they, they are so hostile to workers having any sort of power in this economy that they don't, you know, they don't want any sort of, you know, worker power to taint their waters. Yeah, pretty gross stuff. Taint, yeah, taint their waters. Wow. We wouldn't want to be polluted with all those highfalutin ideas like... Uh, defined benefit yeah. and a paid lunch break yep or a mandatory water break god forbid yep 844-899-TVLR is the phone number 844-899-8857 uh we're gonna do one more segment uh talking about the uaw and uh we we'll we'll, we'll, we'll probably take we might take one call we might take one call um well, so I had quite a few things I was going to rant and rave about, but now see it's twelve twenty one, so you know, oh, in man. the interest of time, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll keep it short. Yeah. So the UAW strike authorization vote is obviously the big. That's the kind of the big labor news this week, and that is that uh, the one hundred fifty thousand big three uh, auto worker UAW members voted ninety seven percent to authorize a strike. Uh, that was announced by the UAW International Union uh, by President Sean Fain yesterday morning at in a live stream. And uh, so let, let's listen to him make that announcement. All right, well, we've got a couple clips here from Sean Fain. I want to make sure I get the right one. Hopefully I do here. That all of us are fed up with the big three's race to the bottom. We're fed up with seeing big three profits break. The uh, bank I don't think that's the right one. While is we're it, breaking our backs. Uh, thought I had it titled announcement. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. Let me see if I can find that. Sorry about that, y'all. Oh, no worries. Uh, right. I don't know 
I've been talking a lot, you know, about a 32-hour work week, 40-hour work week. Yeah, so I don't, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that you, uh, I don't know that I see this one. Uh, but, I, I see Ford CEO, I see GM exec, work week Sean Fain, why Sean Fain? Okay. Um, yeah, well, so he announced, you know, that 97% voted in favor, and, and we can go back to that first clip that you played, where he talks about why his members voted uh, voted 97% to authorize a strike. Yeah, that's big. That all of us are fed up with the big three's race to the bottom. We're fed up with seeing big three profits break the bank while we're breaking our backs. We're fed up with big three CEOs getting double-digit pay increases while our pay continues to go backwards. We're fed up with plant closures, tears, and corporate greed. Recently, one of the big three executives dismissed our bargaining demands by saying that we need to focus on reality and that we need to work together. <clears throat> so let's talk about reality. The reality is that the big three made a combined $21 billion in profits in just the first six months of this year. That's on top of the quarter trillion dollars in North American profits they made over the last decade. The reality is the big three have closed or spun off 65 plants over the last 20 years. So try telling workers at Belvedere Assembly, Lordstown Assembly, GM's powertrain in Warren, Ford's Romeo engine plant, Trenton engine plant, Marysville Axle, Mount Elliott tool and die, Toledo machining plant. Tell them all how working together has worked out for them. Try telling our retirees who haven't seen an increase by one cent over the last 17 years while inflation has skyrocketed, how well working together has worked for them. Our retirees have went backwards. Tell all the temps that are living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, while they're working seven days a week for 12 hours a day in some places, with no commitment to their future, how working together works for them. Better yet, ask Sarah Chambers, a single mother who started at Ford as a temporary worker and had to work for 16 years before reaching top pay. Tell her what it's like to work together with management. Right now, a majority of the big three employees are second-class workers with no pensions and no post-retirement health care. So how's that working together? Are we working together when our wages have regressed over the last 10 years? Inflation's been hammering us. We see it in the price of bread, in the cost of milk. And here's the simple truth that every real unionist knows in the depths of their soul. We're working together and when we're working together with management, it doesn't work. That's why contract talks are called collective bargaining, not working together. We've sat by for decades while these companies continue to just take and take from us. They took our union's hard-won pensions. They took our retiree health care. They've taken our wages. They take our mental and physical health. I just talked to someone this morning who was talking about his daughter working in a plant and has had carpal tunnel on both, both hands. So, you know, this is our time to take back what we're owed. Working together with the companies doesn't work for us. And so there you go. I mean, some really powerful, a really powerful message there about rebutting exactly to what the complaints about going on strike are going to be. 
There's going to be all sorts of people in the media. Why don't you just work together? Why are you so combative to your company? Why are you so antagonistic towards the company, the poor company? Why don't you just work together? And that is what working together gets you. It it gets you disrespect, less wages, worse working conditions, not being able to retire with dignity. Unfortunately, and you know, I mean, I, I know that this is this is something that is near and dear to a, a longtime listener of the show, uh, Joe Marshall. This was a big fight that he had with the paper companies back in the '80s about teams and redesign and you know, labor management partnerships. It's all when it's coming from when it's coming from management, and it doesn't come along with a stake in the company, then it's it's n- not worth the paper that it's written on or not written on. You know, probably sent out in an email today, some of these plans. Yeah, it, well, I think, you know, working together on whose terms and to what end Yep, is what's important. I mean, if management wants to work together to recruit and retain employees by paying them what they're worth, Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm sure, you know, President Sean Fain is is happy to work with them on that. Right. Um, You know, if they want to work together on ending this, you know, travesty that is two tiers, I'm sure he's happy to work together on on that, you know, uh, I'm sure. Right. So uh, working together, but on whose terms and to what end is is what is relevant. And um, because I dealt with that, you know, in in my career uh as a staff organizer like you know at what point do you push too much Mm -hmm. um you know what times do you work together what times is it combative uh and there's not always easy answers for that but you know when the other side is not operating in good faith Mm -hmm. um or when you see just as in this case, the the massive profits yeah. that they have reaped. I mean, just massive, massive profits. And the idea um, that a little bit of dignity and respect for these workers is too much to ask. I mean, come on now. Mm-hmm. There yeah. are no cars without the, the workers. Yeah, There are no profits without the workers there, right? And the workers are, are giving so much of themselves, their lives, their, their time, their minds and bodies um, and producing these wonderful profits. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it's not a lot to ask. It's and, not a lot to ask. And so while, you know, the UAW negotiating team is working really day and night on this kind of stuff, while UAW members are working day and night creating the vehicles, I mean, uh, we're going to hear this in a, in a clip here in a moment. Uh, Sean Fain talks about one of the plants being in critical status right now, which is something that amazingly allows the company to just declare and have 90 days where their employees work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Okay, so there's yeah, liter- that ought not be legal. Yeah, yeah, ought not be legal is, is absolutely right. But there's a there's a plant here in the United States that is union seven days a week, 12 hours a day right now for 90 days. And so that's what the union that that's what these union members and their officers are doing this week. Um, why don't we take a look at what the Ford CEO is doing? What do you do? Yeah. That's awesome. I'm the CEO. <laughs> Here, 
Yeah, yeah, no, I'm the CEO. I'm Tim Farley. I'm, I'm like on a road trip. You're actually the CEO. Yeah. What are you doing out here? I'm Wait, going really? through a thousand mile road trip. I'm on a 1,000 mile road trip in my $80,000 car. While I have employees, I don't, maybe it's, I don't think it's a Ford plant. Maybe it's a GM plant. But while there are auto workers working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, while the UAW is bargaining with other members of my executive team, day and night, into the night, over the weekend. I'm on a road trip. I'm so, so out of touch. And the General Motors had an executive give an update on the negotiations uh, where he assures us that, you know, despite our eyes showing us, you know, what the executives are doing that are, you know, us seeing the Ford CEO taking a 1000 mile road trip in an $80,000 vehicle, despite seeing the Stellantis COO being in his, uh, multi-million dollar Mexican mansion. This GM executive, the vice president of global manufacturing and sustainability. This sounds like a Sounds like a stand-up guy here. He tells us that they're taking it very seriously. Hey, Team GM. Gerald Johnson here. I wanted to give you a brief update on where we're at with negotiations. First of all, I'm standing here in Winsfield Assembly Plant. Just finished a great walk around. Kudos to the Winsfield team for their launch performance on the new Colorado and Canyon. As it pertains to negotiations, uh, the subcommittees are working hard. As recent as this weekend, they've been in there working through the weekend in order to come to solutions necessary to move forward with our agreement. I can also tell you that everyone's taking this very seriously. Everybody's taking it very seriously. Just take our word for it. Don't actually look at anything that we're doing. <laughs> Just take my word for it. I'm saying it and that makes it true. Really gross stuff. But um, in Sean Fain's announcement of the strike authorization vote, he really dug in to his members' demands for a shorter work week, which I think is really, really amazing that we've got a union leader out here uh, pushing the envelope on this issue. And he speaks really eloquently to why this is so important for his members and for the American working class. Let's listen to that. I've been talking a lot, you know, about a 32-hour work week, 40-hour work week for 32 hours that we work, 40 hours pay. And it's, it's been wild to watch the talking heads on television that continue to have a meltdown over this discussion. You know, right now, Stellantis has put its plants on critical status, forcing our members to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day in many cases, week after week for 90 straight days. That's not a life. Critical status, you know, it's named right because working that much can put anyone in critical condition it's terrible for our bodies, it's terrible for our mental health, and it's terrible for our family life. We miss critical moments in the lives of our children, critical moments like Little League games and birthday parties. We, we are one of the most overworked countries in the world. You look at the average number of hours spent working over a year. The average worker in Japan gets a month more free time than the average worker in the United States. Workers in France have two months more than free time than we have. 
And top it all off, workers in Germany have three months more free time than workers in the United States have. So just imagine how much your life would improve if you received the same pay and benefits you have now, but you work 12 weeks less to earn it. Right here in our own country, the talking heads have lost their shit every time I talk about the 32-hour work week. But you know what? They and their coworkers were working from home all throughout the pandemic. And I recently read an interesting study uh, by Deloitte that said uh, most workers in the financial industry are either working from home or coming into the office only a couple days a week. And this study found that 66% of those workers would quit their job if their employers made them come to work to, at the office five days a week. And you wonder why that is. Because they found out during that time that all that extra time at home improved their relationships with their children by 70-some percent. It improved their relationships with their spouses and partners over 60-some percent. With every relationship category in their, in their life, because they were able to work home more, and spend more time at home with family and friends, every relationship category they looked at, it improved over 50%. So it, it turns out people are happier when they spend less time at work, not more. And you know what? I've heard many of these people, the pundits, want to say, yeah, well, these people have an education. Well, UAW family, you know what I say when they say that to me? I call bullshit. Many of our members not only have college educations, but during the pandemic, we were deemed essential. Our members risked their health and safety to keep the lines running during COVID. Some of our members even gave their lives. So now we continue to risk our health and safety, our mental health, our relationships and all that by being overworked and underpaid. So here's my question to all of you. Isn't our time just as valuable as the time of the white collar workers? Aren't our families just as important as the families of company executives? Isn't our own health just as valuable as that of the talking heads on television? You know, UAW family, our demands and our fight are about more than just us. They're about the double standards in our society. So there you go. That is, uh, you know, I mean, that's a really powerful message about why, <clears throat> you know, workers deserve a shorter work week. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I so agree with you and I agree with everything uh, President Fain said. Um, you know, we'll see what happens with these negotiations and uh, there's a lot left to be shaking out right now, but um, I think it's going to be interesting to see, but I really appreciate, you mm -hmm. know, him putting forward this demand and talking about this issue and the way he's talking about it because we have to reclaim our time. Yep. We have to reclaim our time. Like in so many different industries, so many different professions, it doesn't matter what profession or industry you're in. It seems like mm -hmm. we just continually have an assault on our time and we've got to reclaim it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really huge. And, um, you know, the labor movement fought to get us the 40 hour week. Uh, the labor movement fought for the 30-hour week, and we came pretty close to getting it, is my understanding. Uh, you know, but it's it's time to reclaim that fight, I mm -hmm. think, and and so I really like to see that. Yep, absolutely, uh, really great stuff. And 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 
not only the way that he's talking about it for UAW members, but being able to connect it to the broader working class and these wor- broader working class struggles. You know, he, right. uh, you know, he mentioned <coughs> his solidarity with uh, and the UAW solidarity with the SAG-AFTRA and the writers, um, and that's really powerful. Uh, and you know, it's really, uh, really, really good stuff uh, to see this, and um, you know, because management is not taking it seriously despite you know their claims that they are uh it is you know it's looking more and more likely that we're going to see a strike after september 14th so we're going to keep our eyes on this obviously and um september 14th is the deadline not a reference point and um like i said we're going to keep an eye on it yeah just sending all (laughs) all the solidarity to the uaw uh wishing them much success in this fight it's important um, just like the Teamsters fight, I think has important ramifications on the broader working class. I think this one does too. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, um, I think there is a, a militant upsurge in, in terms of the working class in this country. And, and I hope it just produces more and more wins for working people. Yeah. And so that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. And we've got a... I'm excited about this interview by Blair L.M. Kelly. We are going to be talking to Blair L.M. Kelly about her book, uh, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. Uh, I think that's going to be a good uh, a good uh, uh, interview. And um, not least because Robin D.G. Kelly... Uh, was one of the people who wrote um, an endorsement of the book on the book's blurb on the back. So uh, I have a lot of a lot of respect for uh, for uh, Robin Kelly. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. We're also going to be talking to Sean Orr from the Teamsters about uh, contract enforcement. And you know now that because now that the Teamsters UPS Teamsters have ratified the contract. The thing turns uh, the the campaign now turns to um, <clears throat> how do you enforce it? Because uh, you know whether you think it was enough or not, you know, kind of the vote is done now, and you got and and now we have to you know the the goal for the UPS Teamsters has to be we have to make sure that we take everything from this company that is ordered in the contract we can't let them get away with anything and so there's a lot of work to be done there and so we're going to talk to sean Orr about that yeah uh, absolutely a- absolutely it's an opportunity to build your strength and and to again win win for workers mm-hmm. yeah so i'm really looking forward to it it's going to be a good show i think and uh, appreciate everybody tuning in uh like the stream before you head out if you haven't yet uh subscribe if you haven't uh donate to us if you have the means tvlr.fm slash donate you can send a one-time donation or you can make a monthly recurring donation of any amount uh, any amount would help and um yeah, uh, buy tickets to our live show September 17th, Sunday, September 17th, 6 p.m. at Shenanigans Comedy Theater in Huntsville off Lehman Ferry. Lehman Ferry. Seats are very limited, 40, so you're going to want to go ahead and get your seats here soon. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I think it's going to be a great opportunity just just to get together and talk and, and have a good night. Uh, 
Also, I did want to plug the UAH Human Rights Film Festival one more time. Uh, that is coming up September 12th through 14th, I believe, uh, is what we said. Uh, let me just confirm that. But uh, I did want to plug that again. I think that's going to be really cool. I just like I, I like that that's happening here in Huntsville. Uh, it's neat to see stuff like that going on in our community. Uh, so definitely wanted to highlight that. Um, and also wanted to mention that Cover Alabama is going to be launching a week of action around Medicaid expansion here soon, here the, leading into Labor Day. Uh, so definitely stay tuned. Uh, if you're not already following Cover Alabama on social media, please do that. Uh, for those of you who are listening and you live in Alabama, uh, your help is requested in, uh, mm-hmm. in contacting Governor Ivey regarding Medicaid expansion. We have waited far too long for this policy. It is a no-brainer policy. I won't get on my soapbox about it, but, you know, it's, it's time to do it. So I just wanted to go ahead and put that out there. Yep. All right. See y'all next week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye, y'all.